On this episode of Punk Rock Business School, we're going to talk to my friend Derek Sabori from The Cosm, which is a brand of sustainable yoga wear for men. And Derek has also taken that sustainability background and turned that into a course business. And we're going to get into that as well as his business's philosophy of people, planet, and profit. That's coming up. Derek Sabori, welcome to Punk Rock Business School. How are you, man? Thank you, Danny. Glad to be here. I'm good. Ready to roll. Ready yeah, to rock and good. roll, if you will. Yeah, it's good to uh, it's good to see you face to face. It's been a long time, even though we don't live far apart. I know, I know. And uh, at least if I can have some virtual time with you, I'll take it. Some <laughs> pixels, some Danny Thompson yeah. pixels, I'll take them. <laughs> so. Um, you know, just to, to get us up to speed, you have two business, two main businesses that you're working on. You have the Cosm yoga brand, mm -hmm. and then you have Underswell. Um, get us up to this point, how you got both of these things going and just a little bit of your backstory. So people have that context. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a journey. It's been a bit of a journey. Um, my career, I always like to kind of start with my education because it was this weird path that I took. I thought maybe I would be an architect when I went into college. So um, the college that my counselor suggested that I go to though, they didn't have architecture. So I ended up in an engineering program and that was, I quickly realized about two years in, probably not quick enough. Then I'm like, this is not for me. <laughs> so I switched to art, switched my, ma my major to art. So I graduated from UC Irvine with an art degree. Even then had no idea what I wanted to do. Right. So Went and traveled, went through Europe, um, traveled through Europe for a while, just came home like, oh, what am I going to do? I'd always, you know, for, I'd been for years and years, I'd been a surfer, um, uh, you know, kind of a, a casual skateboarder, but I loved that industry. And I had an opportunity, a friend of mine worked at the company Volcom. Um, she was uh, working in their, in their accounting department back then as it was. And she called me one day and goes, hey, you know, it was during the summer. She goes, hey, we've, um, our receptionist is sick. You want to come in and answer the phones for us? <laughs> like, yeah, heck yeah, I know. But Volcom, I mean, at that time, it was 95, 96. So they were just a four or five year old company. So I knew about them, but they were really small. So I went in there, started answering the phones for free. And that, that led to almost a 20 year career there wow. at, the, at the company. So from there, you know, I started um, helping with data entry and, and sales order acknowledgements and stuffing envelopes and just kind of asking whoever I could for, if they needed help. And that progressed. And eventually, um, I got hired then. My first full-time job there was um, to purchase raw materials. All the production was done domestically at the time. So I was in charge of purchasing fabric and trims. And I didn't come from a fashion background and apparel um, background. Um, but I knew that this was a company that was going somewhere. Uh, I was watching it, just sort of this excitement that was building around it. I'm like, man, I'm on the other side of this threshold now. You know, because there's that magical window when you go to apply somewhere yeah, and you're like, hey, I'm so ready. And I'm excited. And then you get there and you're like, oh, I can't get past this front desk. I, I, a lot of people would look at that time frame, too, as kind of like the glory days in a way of some of those early surf skate. Oh, it was brands, you know, where it was all the bands were into it, too, because yep. all the, you know, 
it was VHS tapes, you know, at that time had, you know, all the, a lot of the punk bands, that's how they got their start was showing up in those surf and skate videos. And that, that stuff was just all so connected back then. It was amazing, that energy. And that's, and that was, you know, Volcom's whole jam was surfing, snowboarding, skateboarding, art, music, you know, rock and roll, kind of that whole lifestyle, mashing it all together. They were the first, you know, the first brand to do that. So being in that mix, was just like, oh, whoa. So, you know, that I eventually then I, I kind of, you know, learned my way through apparel manufacturing, did domestic manufacturing, purchasing raw materials. Eventually a lot of that went offshore, but um, I went from raw materials then to um, design room manager from there, head of what was called, what's called merchandising. It's the business side of, of between um, design sales and, and finance, if you will. Every job I had there, which was really cool, was um, didn't exist before. So they put me in place to go, we need a manager over here. We need somebody to build this department. And um, all through that, so um, divisional merchandising manager, planning and analysis and department I started for them. But all through that, I found my I found sustainability and kind of responsible business and doing things better. I had these influencers that came to me that that came early on and started showing us better materials made of recycled materials and organic and hemp and just kind of a different way of doing business that just felt like, oh, wait a minute, this is this is cool. Why did nobody? And by then I'd gone back to school. I went back for my MBA while I was at Volcom. So, you know, years go by yeah. about 10 years in. I start getting this information on this new way of doing business at the time we were calling eco business or being green, okay. you know, early what, 2000s. What year would this have been that, that that element started to filter its way into Volcom and into, you know, you as a business person? Early 2000s. So it was okay. about um, 2005-ish or so is when I started getting that um, kind of that feedback and meeting those influencers, if you will, and getting exposed to that. Then we started doing this little lunch and learn and we built this little eco club, we called it. And by 2006, my, what I call sort of my flashpoint moment, because by then I was deep into product and, and managing the team and we were you know, building, the company is booming, growing. They went public in 2000, was it was a 2004, I believe. They went public. So I got to ride that wave and then they came in and they got um, acquired later in 2009, if I remember if my dates are right. But either way, um, we did this lunch and learn and we watched the movie Inconvenient Truth. And that was my first exposure to climate change and to this, you know, to just this idea that the business and the stuff that we were making, I knew how to glow, it was having an impact. And it wasn't about being a better recycler in the break room or doing volunteer days. It was about all the stuff we were making, all this product, you know, over yeah. and over. So how could we do, I didn't want to walk away and say, well, then I'm not part of that. I knew I was going to be a part of that. I just wanted to do it better. That's a tough, you know, situation to be in, to be, you know, yeah. Like you're saying, it's one thing to be a person, you know, doing your regular job, who's now wanting to go to the beach cleanup or, be more responsible at home mm -hmm. versus somebody who feels that way, who is in an industry <laughs> that is, you know, contributing in to some extent anyway, you know, to, to the issue and, and having to go, well, I love the company. You know, I love the people I work with. I love with. the industry. I love the, the whole industry, thing. This whole thing. How do I meld this all together? Yeah. And, and the big part of my journey too was, so I, then I eventually got put in charge of this we called it at the time it was just a social responsibility department. And, you know, we didn't, we built this as we went. Yeah. yeah. And so even though, as I got this official role, I remember going, okay, well, what do I do now? Cause I know 
my biggest problem is our supply chain. And I don't even know where to start making all the products, men's, women's, snow, accessories, footwear, whatever it is, right? We've got all this stuff. And then Volcom was acquired by a company called Caring. They're a friend, they, they were called PPR at the top, PPR. They're a French luxury conglomerate. Um, they own Gucci, Saint mm -hmm. Laurent, Stella McCartney at the time, McQueen, et cetera. They owned Puma. They acquired Volcom. We got sucked up in there and they were building their global sustainability program, which has become the most, mm. one of the most influential sustainable fashion programs probably in the world. Oh, wow. So I got to slide right in there, right as they were kicking that off. Literally within months after the acquisition, um, they said, hey, Derek, you're already building this little department, this little program. Come with us. We're getting all the brands together and we'll be meeting each year to build out this sustainability program. And immediately I was in touch with, they put point people in charge um, for each of the brands. I was dealing with now PhDs and ecosystem services and biodiversity experts, like people that were beyond what I was thinking was this new eco way of doing business. You know, by that point, we we're starting to talk about sustainability and we knew it was, it was beyond. But for me, that was just a huge education opportunity. So I, sp I spent the next five or six years working with them. So by the time I left there, you know, to get to the end of it, I was their vice president of global sustainability. So I had done that. Um, so 2005 to 2019, um, to, you know, but my first role there was, like I said, it was um, 2011. I think it was my first full-time job is when we got in 2009. I'm sorry. So left there. That's what I was in charge of is just helping the supply chain, materials, strategy, corporate goals, targets, initiatives, environmental, social, balancing it all. You know, we've that triple bottom line, people, planet, profit, making sure we're just being a better brand and a better company and driving helping to drive the industry forward as well in that so yeah i and I, I can't remember what year it is but i remember when you left volcom to become self you know you took the uh, the scary plunge you know which i can relate to it, it's man if you've never been there when you leave like the comfort and stability of a corporate lifestyle to go to do my own thing man yeah. it's it's rough like the, the tension and the nerves and, you know, it was easy for me, you have a family and everything and, you know, much easier for me to do. And uh, um, I forget what year that was. What year was that? 2015, end of 2015, 2015 is when I, when I left. So, and that was tough because by then I had my dream job and I was well, now I was, I was well along now. I'd spent years being educated on it. So I was, I reported directly to the CEO upstairs office, two doors over from the CEO. Nobody reported to me. I reported directly to the executive team and to caring over in Paris. So I was over there, you know, totally autonomous role, my own budget you know, it was amazing. And then I would go to subsidiaries in Australia and France and whoever needed this sustainability advice, but I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. But and, and Volcom was, I mean, the office is a mile and a half from my house. Right. So no commute. <laughs> going you know, and traveling for conferences all over the world, Turkey, Hong Kong, you know, wherever. So I was just like, it was perfect. It was so good, but I had to leave. I, I wanted to leave on my own accord. And I also knew too, I wasn't getting any younger and you yes. just, everything by, you know, by then the company had gone through a public, you know, offering had been acquired, mm -hmm. new players are coming and going and you're there for so long and every, you know, your career and salary and everything is doing this. I just felt like at some point I'm going to be 50 something 
somebody's going to be going through line items as more and more changes this yep. thing hands over sure. and somebody's like who is this guy and even though you feel you've been there for 19 years and every oh, oh that's derek everybody well that person sure. doesn't know you and who you are and they're like well i can get we can get three college kids to do this job and it doesn't make sense anymore yeah i, I just felt I, like that could have been coming you know yeah it's it's like reliving my existence you yeah know, yours is very similar it's the same thing i was there 18 years and there was 10 stores when I started and everybody knew each other and the owners and the CEO, you know, I could call them on the cell phone and, you know, and then you start moving up and you're making more money and, you know, all those things are going good. And then, then, you know, you hit, it hits a certain point where you're like, Oh, they just hired some guy from Best Buy to come in and he's making five times the money I'm making. And doesn't seem to know anything about what we're doing, <laughs> you know, and just yeah. all those corporate things start happening and the stock options. And you're like, wait a minute, that guy got that much and I only got this much and just yeah. all those things. And I, and it was a sim similar thing. We, we went public. I went through that whole thing, then back to private. And, you know, that was when I made, made the jump, you know, we went back to private. I had to get paid out on my stock options and I was thought, well, now's as good a time as any, you know, there's a little money in the bank, which never lasts anywhere near as long as you think it will. No, and, exactly. Uh, you know, made that jump. And uh, I've kept in touch with so many other people who had been in the company even longer than me that had dedicated their whole existence to building that company, who exactly what you were just describing happened to. They came in and went, this guy's been here 20 years in this position, making this money, we can pay a new person half of that. And boom, all yeah. those people got laid, got let go, you know, and and, and especially too, the, the relationships, um, as new people come in, it gets, gets diluted. Yeah. So no matter how you have to work really hard to stay influential in the company and every few months, like, oh, so new CFO, oh, a new operations officer. So rebuild those relationships. And you, it's this tension of like, but I've been doing this for the last 18 years. You know, it's, it can be really humbling and you've got to stay in check. But at the same time, and for me, I was like, I just always, I knew I wanted to do my own thing. And so the opportunity came for me when uh, and and my journey at, at Vulcan was amazing it was great mm -hmm. i learned so much the, the the team there is amazing i still do um you know i still keep in good touch with them but one of the early guys there he um Troy Eckert he was their first um yeah. second employee he had this idea for a company right he's like hey there's a space in the yoga market by then we were both doing yoga surfing a lot and um he just goes hey i i need somebody i see a hole here nobody's doing this kind of a cool look cool vibe, sustainable gear, which everybody's looking for in the yoga space and bringing in surfers, skaters, snowboarders, musicians who want something a little different, who don't want to wear Lululemon or something else, or that's too hippie-ish, you know? Yeah. So we just, we, we struck in that spot and he goes, Hey, I can't do this on my own. I can do the marketing side, but I need somebody to do the, um, the sustainability and operations. So that to me was my off ramp. I'm like, that sounds good. Let's do it. Volcom hired me back to be a consultant. So the cool, the fun thing was, is that then I was still basically doing my same job just now as an independent contractor. I yeah. did that for about four or five years, got to build up Cosm in the meanwhile, but then also branded my consulting business, as you will, as the underswell. So now I had these two companies that I was able to build all under the security blanket of having continued relationship with Volcom doing that same sustainability work just as an independent. And it all kind of tied together because all of those things were about helping brands, building my own brand, focus on this idea of, you know, doing business in a more responsible way or a more ambitious way that's in line with what we call, you know, the, like I said, again, triple bottom line, this idea of 
social, environmental, profit, and economic, balancing it all together and trying to lower our environmental footprint, making sure people are taken care of, people throughout, the, you know, throughout your supply chain, sharing with your customers on this journey and getting them excited about, hey, we're offering something that's a little different here. Um, so, you know, obviously Cosm is, a, a, you know, apparel brand targeted towards, you know, men doing yoga. You've kind of nailed that. Give us a little bit more. What's the business model with the underswell? What are all the things that you do in that company? Well, that one's, uh, it's interesting because we've, I had to pivot, you know, just like all of us did, right? So I had this, this Volcom security, security blanket because I didn't really, it was an anchor that allowed me to, to focus on my entrepreneurial endeavors. I also, I'm a teacher, um, an instructor at Orange Coast College. So I teach a sustainable apparel um, certificate program. So I teach this three semester program there as well. So I had all this other stuff going on. So I didn't have to necessarily build that consulting brand. March of last year came. And boom, you know, I got let go as just, even if it was just temporarily, I'm like, I know this is going to be longer than, than that. Right. So I immediately um, pivoted. I had to go out and find more clients. I had a couple here and there, but I immediately had to go start building new, a new client base, which I knew wasn't going to happen for months anyway. So um, I also built an online course. Then I took that college course that I had developed for the college and kind of all my years of expertise crammed it into these online courses because I was having um, industry professionals come into my college course and spend a year with me in a structured nighttime courses, homeworks, midterms, assignments, buy your text, et cetera. And I'm like, you guys, this is, so that was for the very ambitious. They really wanted to be there. So I'm like, I want to build something so I can just, so here's a link, do it at your own pace. It's all the same information, if not more. So I spent those first pandemic years, those quarantine months, um, <laughs> felt like it right. <laughs> Recording. I did 24. So it's 24 hours of lecture material broken up into individual lectures, modules, resources, links, you name it, the whole deal built out the course. And so now I help individuals, I help brands, um, either start scale, um, or, you know, continue on their sustainability journey. A lot of people come to me, a lot of brands say, Hey, we know we have to do this. We don't know where to start. What should we do first? My whole thing is about education. So what I'm going to immediately do, and so now I go work with brands too, and they're, um, or even core, um, I work, do a lot of work with board writers who owns um, Quicksilver, Billabong, Ruka, Element, everybody, where I'll go in there with them and train their staff. So I don't want to necessarily come in as a consultant and tell yeah. you what to do. I want to build your team up. Why not have them be just as knowledgeable as me in this space and be a, an awesome designer or a developer? So basically helping everybody on their journeys, linking them to these, you know, ambitious targets that are being set by some of the best brands, the biggest brands and most influential ones in the world. All the NGOs that are doing all this work are pushing forward so hard and it's getting harder and harder for brands because they, they come out thinking, oh, so if we put some recycled content, if we use some recycled bottles in our shorts, does that help? It's like, that was, that was so early 2000s. Like, <laughs> It's true right now, you know, the expectations are that brands should be focusing on addressing biodiversity in their supply chains, living wages, one and a half degree pathway, you know, climate change initiatives throughout their supply chains. These are big, ambitious, really hard to tackle things, but Nike, Levi's, H&M, you name it. These brands are pushing it so far forward that that's becoming the new standard in the luxury division, sportswear, wherever, 
So it's a really tough place for brands to be in. And that's, that's where I help. I come help and uh, get them up to there. Yeah. You know, I can imagine it's one thing to start small and use that model. Like you've done, you know, Cosm as a yoga apparel brand, you were able to apply all that knowledge that you already had knowing full well, this is where it's going and, you know, start that business model. It's, It's much different for a Nike who's built an entire, you know, this massive conglomerate based around doing business a certain way and having to make those changes and remain profitable. You know, we, we I'm sure you experienced that back at Volcom and, and I certainly did that. Those cultures and a lot of things like that really get difficult the minute the company becomes public, mm-hmm. you know, where it's, yeah. it just becomes about the quarter. Well, we got the quarterly numbers coming up. We can't spend any money for the next month, you know? And it was just like this revolving door where it just happened. It's like, well, every three months there's going to be this quarterly, you know, report. So, really every other month we have to go into complete shutdown or don't spend this money or do this and do that. And, you know, so I can imagine that just the task of taking this big ship, these big companies and making that shift is gotta be just, you know, what would appear to be almost just a insurmountable mountain to kind of climb. It really kind of is. And there's a book called uh, Mid-Course Correction that explains just that. It's by Ray Anderson. And it was about the company um, Interface, the big carpet company. And they were a multi-billion dollar company. He had his sort of you know flash moment, if you will. He read a really important book for anybody that's interested. It's called The Ecology of Commerce by Paul Hawken. Paul Hawken does a lot of really amazing talks and has a new project called Project Drawdown. But years ago, early 90s, he read this book. And just goes, what am I doing with my company? Like uh, this, I, I no longer want to do this business the old way. We're relying on this finite, you know, finite resources, a linear economy. Like there is an opportunity for us to change and do something better. He had to shift his whole, this huge mega company in that way. And to your point, it is, it can seem nearly impossible. And it's like moving this big tanker ship, right? No matter how much you spin the wheel, you're barely, barely, barely moving. So for me, Um, I definitely recognize that coming in as a consultant and I am not somebody who's like, you have to do this. This is, I think what makes me good and differentiates is I came from the inside out and that's how I got that role also, because I knew about budgets and calendars and operations and vendor relationships. I knew all of that. All I was trying to do was like merge onto the freeway with this new way. And if that on-ramp had to be 10 miles long, that's okay. And if we couldn't get it this season, then we'll do it next. But as long as we're moving forward, and um, the, it was really interesting to start with a, starting with a startup like, like Cosm, I took everything that was on my supposed to do list and we just did it. And to your point, it's because we could, but I know that the hard sell is, and it's actually not that hard sell because it's just what it is. Sustainability is not the cheaper way. It's not the faster way. It's not the easier way. <laughs> and so if you want to be in this game and be able to have this on your website and talk to your stakeholders and your consumers and your investors about it, because BlackRock, you know, everybody is asking for more sustainable business, right? And they're saying, hey, we're going to be divesting for brands that are and companies that are not doing this or that are in this line of business. So now everybody is scrambling like, oh, we have to switch. And it's like, guys, it took Nike 20 years to do that. So it's this (laughs) weird cat and mouse game. But where do you think we are in that arc of... You know, uh, Michael Shermer always he did a book a few years back and it was, I I forget the exact title, but it's kind of like based around the moral arc, 
right? In that through time, over time, the moral arc seems to naturally move towards justice, you know? Even it might seem like it's not getting there or it takes forever mm. to get there, but that moral arc, if you just look at history, right? And just look at changes that we might still be battling with, but it's moving towards that, you know, end result that it, it is more justifiable. Where do you think we are in that corporate, you know, that corporate world? Cause there's gonna hit this point, you know, where like you're saying businesses that aren't doing this are gonna get left behind. They won't get investors. There's going to be an element where eventually consumers are going to look at those things and ask about those things and support the companies that, that they support. Are we still really in the very early stages of this? Or That's a great, that's a really fun question. I think <laughs> uh, my favorite answer, no matter what, for all things related to sustainability is, well, it depends, right? Because people always want to know, well, what's better, paper, plastic, organic, yeah. recycled? It depends. What, what lens are we looking through? And I think there too, because we could easily have somebody on here is like, well, none of this makes sense because profit is priority and that's just the way it is. And it's like, you're absolutely right. And that and that's why we're trying to find this balance. So I do mm. agree that what I am promoting and this whole movement is kind of utopian, but there's also this, this look that we have to, the business model is, is broken. So I, I will answer your question here in just a second, but the business model is broken. We don't incentivize, incentivize to do the right thing, which means it's taking way longer. But the point is on this arc, I, I kind of think we're like right up at the, almost at the top. We're like, hey, well, this thing's about to, to potentially tip. And here's a perfect example. Um, you know, my approach is that all of this has, has always been, I love working with brands because brands are so influential. I love mm -hmm. products. I love the lifestyle. Yeah. And they have the power, right? Consumers can be knocking all day. But even for those of us that it's like, we rally, we, 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 we fight, we, we fight. I see a sale on my favorite brand, like, ooh, <laughs> oh God, right? It's like, oh, outer known is, is on sale. Oh, I'm, I do, maybe I do need a new pants. So we all, there's only a very sliver of the segment who's like, no matter what, I'm buying top dollar, paying sure, top sure. dollar for fair trade, organic recycled, which is important, really good. But it's just not a reality for the, for the masses. Yes. And I acknowledge that brands then they, and I call it the grilled cheese effect. It's got to come from both sides. So you've got to have heat from the top, heat from the bottom. Mm -hmm. A grilled cheese is, is crap if you only have, if you left one side of the toaster is off, right? Um, so we've got to have executives and brands. We've got to have NGOs. We've got to have, um, uh, you know, um, regulation and government. Everybody comes in and does a little bit here and we, we mold it. But the consumers are more ready than ever, but they're still not ready to pay more. And they just won't. There has to be incentive mm. for brands to do this because we have to know that this is collectively better for our future. That I definitely, I know, and I agree with and believe. But here's a great example to ask where we're at. GM, commitment. We're done with the old way. We're yeah. done. There was no incentive. There was no regulation. There was no, they just see the writing on the wall. And this <laughs> right. is years of consumers pushing. The, the, the ones and the twos of people like, more green, go green, electric car, you know, EVs, whatever. And then investors like, you know what? There is kind of something here. I get it. And government up and down and wavering. And all of a sudden GM's just like, F it. We're in, count us in, Ford, Volvo, you know, it is happening. So yes. once to me, that was like, there we go. That's, it's, yeah, that's an really interesting point. Cause there's, you know, I think about a GM or a Ford, you know, and, and, 
for those that don't pay attention to California news. So that was a, you know, uh, a mandate, right. From the governor, maybe last year, they made that announcement or. Um, the new one that GM is going all electric by 2025 or something like that. Well, was I think just... though, but was that prompted because California did pass something? What I forget what year it is, but they're going to, you know, the, the initial move was California is going to stop selling um, gas powered vehicles by, yep. I think it was 2025. Yes. And there was a ton of negative pushback, of course. Mm-hmm. What, I think Ford right away jumped on board and was like, we're in for California. GM was the one did not. Then I remember when GM, I saw the news from the governor that GM had jumped on board with that. So maybe they did it nationwide, but it's such an interesting thing because along with the positive, you know, environmental elements of the whole thing, the whole other side of it is as a company, to me, it's, I'm shocked that companies don't look down the road and go, yeah, we're going to go out of business if we don't make that move someday. Because you, know? you already alluded to it. It's that it's the business model is, is yeah. flawed, right? The right. quarterly earnings, the quarterly earnings. And that's why even like Warren Buffett and, and, and those type of investors, like you guys, that's short-sighted mindedness, the short-term philosophy is done. It's old. It doesn't work anyway. We will never move forward. Yep. And I agree with you so much. It's like, you guys, how do you not see that this is like a future opportunity and it's new and it's innovative and it's fun. And I work with a materials company called Circular Systems, for example, that is designing new yarns out of crop waste, you know, agricultural crop waste, beautiful yarns that are spun into amazing fabrics. But that's exciting when you're taking oilseed hemp and flax and bananas and turning that into these amazing, if your pants are made from crop waste that otherwise was sitting there and rotting in the field or burning, you know, in polluting communities, that's exciting as opposed to like, well, no, we're just, we're just going to do it the old way. We're still going to, you know, try to grow all the, all the cotton and do all the polyester. It's like, so yeah, I think there's so much opportunity and I also, I just, I don't know. It's, we've got to fix this business model and get people out of that short-term mentality. you know, obviously it's easy for, for us to sit here and go, well, clearly if I was the CEO of Ford, I'd go, ah, the future is electric. Let's just go all in and like, let's own it. Let's don't, we want to be the the owner of that business. Don't we want to be known as like the leader, the first person to get there, you know, but then if, (laughs) you know, when you're running that company and you have the, you know, a legal fiduciary responsibility to invest, you know, to investors in the market to make decisions based around profit, it, you know, it'd be really a difficult decision to make. And I guess that's why you see them start to inch that way. Um, I guess that's a whole different discussion of why the publicly traded business model is a nightmare. Like, yeah, I would never, ever want to be involved in a publicly traded company ever again. And I think from, from my perspective, I agree. And I think from my perspective, you know, um, as a teacher, sustainability focused consultant, et cetera, we hold Patagonia up in the highest regard, right? Because, but look at Yvonne Chouinard always was like, there's no way in hell anybody's taking, I'm not, this isn't going public because guess what? Mm. As soon as I do that, I don't get to say what we do, even when it doesn't make perfect business sense. And a lot of times sustainability (laughs) spends, it's a really a matter of priority, Yes, your mater- there's, there's money in the coffers. And so, but what we've done is we have not prioritized 
taking care of business, taking care of planet, taking care of people. And those two things to me are the same anyway. You take care of people, they can take care of the planet. If we take care of the planet, it'll take care of people, et cetera. But so there's, there's enough money there, but you can't raise your material prices to do more sustainable goods and try to have more marketing dollars and do more events, et cetera. Something has to give so that you can raise this one. I get it. We can't just keep raising prices on everything, but somebody somewhere has to make, there's, there's a pie. And if you want sustainability and you want more certifications and third-party audits and transaction certificates and proof that what you're doing is truly better, eliminating hazardous chemicals, shifting to green chemistry, better supply chains that are safer and cleaner and more efficient, then yes, your, your prices are going to start going up, which means something has to give. Mm-hmm. And that's where companies don't like to do that. They're like, but sure. we can't, we have to do all these other things. And it's like, well, you know, just as well as I, that you can't have everything. So if you really want this, <laughs> you got to make some sacrifices. You know, I, I was kind of making some notes, just thoughts that were coming to my mind as you were talking about this. And, you know, I wrote down race to the bottom, mm. consumer spending. You you were kind of going down that road a little bit in saying that at this point, consumers aren't really ready to spend more. They will, you know, they're going to, they'll be all over social media, green, you know, go green, environment, all these things. But, you know, when it's like, okay, well, these are now $10 more you know, that people will still take that race to the bottom. And it, I mean, the reality is it probably really is going to take leadership up top from these companies to just almost force that change in how we, you know, how we look about things. Do you think we're going to get away from that race to the bottom with everything? Like it's all about just the cheapest thing ever. I do. And here's why I think because that race to the bottom in apparel, we call it the chase, you know, chasing the cheapest needle has also killed people. It's mm-hmm. killed people. It, 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 there's forced labor in our supply chains. There's child labor in our supply chains. Factories collapse, factories burn, and people are exposed to hazardous chemicals all the way through. And I think the, the more exposure to that, consumers are like, wait, that's, that's messed up, you know, but I, hey, H&M, for example, I don't want to pay more for my stuff, but you guys need to clean up your act. H&M to me is actually a really good, um, business case for this because my students actually are funny because like, yeah, one of the worst H&M fast fashion. And there's a huge pushback against fast fashion, Victoria's Secret, you know, Forever 21, all these companies that were like booming. It's just, it's sort of becoming like, oh, that's just not, there's nothing there anymore. There's no story. Fast fashion. What, what is that? Is this idea of turning, um, turning apparel trends faster than, than basically what was considered at once normal. We okay. used to kind of have like three or four seasons, kind of depending on what industry you are, slowly this stuff comes out. Now we are, con- we are conditioned to just being a click. If I go on a Friday, I want to have a whole new collection drop. Mm. And they are making products faster than ever, okay. which means they've got it. You can't put as much into the materials. Sure, you can't sure. put as much into labor. Everything is like pressure, pressure, pressure on price time, delivery, quality goes down. A big part of sustainability is buying for durability, right? Making things last. So there's an argument for sure. If you're like, yeah, but I bought these leather boots and I'm going to wear them for 20 years. And you're telling me leather's bad. Cool. No, that is an argument. You're actually probably right there, you know, but there's still got to be this balance, but I'll never quality and durable products. That can be your first step in building a sustainability Mm, program. Interesting. Getting your, your customers to buy less, hold on to it longer and take better care of it. Interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. I was going to real quick, but fast fashion is just kind of the antithesis of that, right? A yeah. cheap t-shirt that you wore for two or three times. 
the global average for wearing products is like one to seven times before it ends up in the landfill. We don't have these circular recycling programs. We don't have, we're not using, it's like less than one or 2% of recycled goods that come into the products that we make. So it's still mostly made with conventional products, virgin products, and a lot of it ends up in the landfill. It's getting better and better, but it's a, and it's a huge industry, you know, it's a huge industry. So the question was though, how um, the consumer, I guess, is starting to become more aware. They don't like, it's becoming unappetizing. That's sort of throwaway culture. And I think they're looking for more, but they're demanding that the, that the brands and companies provide it to them at a, at a very similar price. And they can maybe start inching up, but they've got to tell a really good story. And that's why sustainability marketing is so such a great opportunity. You're talking about stages throughout the entire supply chain. And it's super complex, Danny, because we have to look at all the issues, climate issues, deforestation, water issues, hazardous mm-hmm. chemicals, air pollution, whatever it is, all throughout at every single stage. And they've got to be able to formulate the story and tell them what they did, where, what kind of impact it's having, and why they're going to charge us two or three or four dollars more for that item. Yeah. You know, the, the other note that I had wrote down that you, you kind of mentioned something that made me think about this, that it's similar in some ways to, you know, there's always a conversation that, you know, in, you know, the inner cities in more economically depressed areas, there isn't a a regular, in some of those neighborhoods, there's not even a regular grocery store to just go and buy, you know, some decent food. Right. And it's just fast food everywhere. Yep. And, you know, again, it's that same thing. Well, at some point, the, the brands have to take on that responsibility of saying, well, this shirt has to be at a level where, you know, all people can pay for it. Whereas mm-hmm. right now it might be more of, you know, an upper crust movement in the country. You know, there's always that, you know, that pushback and that argument that, you know. And I, that's a, excuse me, a really good point. And I think for a while, I think, and it still does probably have an affluence, you know, or a 1% problem or an issue because it's like, <laughs> oh, well, it's nice for you because you can afford that. Right. But um, you see it though in food, especially, right. Whether it's McDonald's or Burger King committing to new supply chains, new mm-hmm. vendors, eliminating certain things, moving to plant-based, all these things. Yeah. So it's becoming more and more accessible. And right. that's why I think when you ask right. where the curve mm-hmm. is, it is in it's that arc, the, the arc of morality, I think that you, you talked about, that's really interesting. Cause I do think, and that's for those of us that have been in this for a long time, I have to always kind of keep my eye on the prize and stay optimistic because I can easily, we can easily just be like, Hey, this is never going to happen. Or this isn't a reality. It's like, but I believe it's going to be, it can be. And I at least want to be a part of this, this fight and this push because one, it's exciting. It's innovative. And we talked about this prior to being on camera is that there are just new, exciting opportunities as a business. If you've been in business for 20 years doing the same thing, you're like, wait, there's this kind of new way that I could fix supply chains and enhance people's lives and give back to the environment and do all these things. And it's like, and still be in fashion or still be in restaurant or whatever it is. Yeah. And it just opens your world to this new set of players and materials and things that is really inspiring and exciting. And that was my spark moment in the early 2000s when I'm like, wait, you're not telling me not to do this. You're just saying, here's some new things that are really cool with a really cool story that I can now tell my customers about and get everybody excited and help to try to differentiate our brand. So yeah, how how have you worked 
these things into, you know, to, to, to kind of go back to your brand, the Cosm brand, and from a marketing and a branding standpoint, how have you worked that stuff in, into the marketing? Yeah, we, um, well, for, for Cosm, for sure, you know, that's, that is our whole DNA. So we're what's called a B Corp. So you can have a, you know, you talked about, uh, you can be that's a benefit corp or a B Corp. Yeah. And so when you're a benefit corp, like we are, like Patagonia is, like Ben and Jerry's, you lock in your commitment to people, planet, profit as part of your bylaws and sort of part, part of your rules of operation, which means you're not necessarily legal, legally um, um, committed to shareholders first. You're committed to doing what you decided is best for all stakeholders. And that's okay. And this is, I, I was reading about this on your website. I forgot to write down the B Corp. <laughs> that was one of the things I was going to ask you about. Is that, I mean, is it governed? Is that a governed thing like from the state or the, you know, the feds the same way a C Corp or LLC or 501C3 and all that is? Yep. So when okay. you decide, so for example, so when we, we're um, registered as, a, um, as an S Corp right now, but so you file as an S Corp, but as a registered benefit corp, and you can cool. do that in certain states. So it's not all 50 states, but um, California for sure you can register. So we're registered as a legal benefit corp. You take a B Corp assessment which is you work with the B Corp team or the, um, uh, the B Lab, and you go through and you do an assessment. They want to know, well, what are you doing for, you know, throughout your supply chain and operations for the environment, for people, for your community, so on and so forth. Big, long questionnaire. They bring in a third party. They bring in a verifier who's like, okay, can you show me, prove it, cool. If you do enough, you reach the score. And it's your sort of badge of saying, hey, we're a purpose-driven company. We have, we're mission-led. Awesome. We're doing something different. Puts us, sets us apart. So it's yeah. a legally binding um, formation and sort of this assessment that you can tell your story with. Very, very, very cool. So, um, so yeah, to get back to, you know, the, the marketing side mm-hmm. of Cosmo, Cosm, um, you know, I see the People, Planet, Profit uh, listed on, on the website. I, I really, I really like that, uh, that concept, you know, and I mean, I've always felt this way, you know, you know, what's the point of it? If you can't a number one, even just start off with the concept of taking care of the people that work for you. Yeah. You know, if your whole model is based around, we're going to pay the lowest, you know, what's the least we could pay somebody to do this, you know, and I've always approached my small business that way. I, I never pay anybody like the least amount, <laughs> you know, we get them. Right. Even right. if it's just an office person, you know, my teachers make, tons of money, but the, you know, even just a, an admin person or something like that, we would always go a little above, you know, uh, that minimum wage, you know, yeah. and obviously that's a hot topic, you know, going on right now. And I, and I always, my, when I look at that and I, I always push back and it's like, well, there's tons of companies that haven't been paying people minimum wage that, you know, in and out burgers never paid minimum wage. Right. You know, do you think they care that there's a com- the conversation right now about raising the minimum wage? They're like, we don't care. We're already paying. Like, we welcome, already pay above that. It welcome to the club. And here are the benefits of doing this. Right. That's not going to impact my business negatively in any way. And I guess it, it, it's it kind of also ties into that. You know, that short sightedness and not looking down the road, the longer you hold out and just decide I'm going to do the bare minimum and make as much money for me as possible, 
or, you know, I have to offer everything at the lowest price possible so I can be competitive. And that means paying people the lowest. Eventually, when those changes happen, you're going to be so far behind the in and out burgers or the, you know, was not, uh, was it Costco that always, you know, paid their people better and, and lots of small businesses and other companies that didn't build the model on let's just get by with the least amount of everything. And again, it's that race to the bottom thing that I, I just, I, I really hope that we're making that turn because there are, there are plenty of people that will pay a little bit more um, for those products and services. Totally. Just because they know they also, they want, because it's, it's aligned with their values and, you know, there's just kind of this new, uh, you know, insights. We just people are just more aware now, whether it's through their kids, the younger generation, everything seems to be changing. And I, I like that, you know, story of, of In-N-Out Burger because it's very similar in, in sustainability, right? Where brands who are like, this is what we've been doing, you guys. It's fine. Like, come on in. The water's, the water's <laughs> fine. It can be done. You know, we're profitable. People love us. People are loyal to our brand. They fiercely advocate for us and stand up for us and protect us. Our business is strong, i.e. Patagonia. Mm -hmm. You know, how can you compare and contrast that with somebody's like, well, yeah, but your profit margins are, aren't, aren't high enough. It's like, well, they don't have to be because we've got this killer consumer base who's never leaving us. And we're bringing on new generations of people every single day. You and your race to the bottom are just hoping to, to you know, hold on each quarter and try to get things cheaper and cheaper and making people through the entire part of your business more and more miserable. You know, it just to me that that's so unappetizing and I get it. There's a business model, I guess there, but to your point, it's like, but that's not me what I do and what I'm trying to promote. And that's why this stuck with me. Cause I'm like, you know what? This feels like me as a person, this feels like doing business this way feels like how I am. And I always felt like, oh man, I can bring my values to work. I don't have to leave my values in the car, right? If you were only concerned with just stripping it away, profit only turning this business, that wouldn't align with your values. And to me, that's like taking your value card and putting it in your glove box in your car and then walking into the office and be like, okay, I don't care about anything. Let's just profit, profit, profit. Right. But that's not who most of us are. Most of us are like, no, I, I do care about my neighbors and community and people and friends and my family and love and, and doing things right and making this better than when I left it. It's like, okay, then business is the biggest driver of all of that. What can we do there to make it better? And you know, doesn't I'm not going to force you to change today or tomorrow, maybe a little bit next month, a little bit more, you know, the <laughs> month after that. So you know, back to for, for Cosm, what we try to do is, you know, just tell that story all the way through. And I try to make sure that we don't say, you know, I'll always say it's like, hey, we're not, it's not perfect. And we're not perfect, but we're doing a lot of things that I think are really aspirational. Transparent business model, like you said, open book business model. Yeah, Some people are like, oh, well, that a bit. yeah, real cool. You know, yoga brand, we, we say it's made for yoga, good for everything else. So it's lifestyle goods, right? But oh, real cool yoga brand, sustainability, $84 for shorts. Like, well, here's the, here's the list. Here's what we paid for materials, labor. It's all made here local. Here's where every stage of where we bought the fabric, how we knit it or what, you know, who we dyed it with, whatever. Here's our cost. Here's what we paid. Our margins, everybody has to make a margin and it's pretty standard. So we're not um, gouging anybody. And if our price, if we can get better pricing along the way, then we'll pass that on. So it's just about, I think, being honest, transparent, open, mm -hmm. and um, trying to, I always tell brands as well, not to try to overdo it. A lot of brands that immediately get in, they want to start saying, 
we've got this sustainable product or the best or this. It's like, just say what it is and say what steps you did. If you nominated a certain supplier, then, then tell, tell them what, tell us what they are and what they do. If you nominated a certain material, tell us the exact benefits of it based by some sort of backup LCA report or some third party that is telling us the same as opposed to trying to sensationalize everything. Yeah. Right. Right. So right. that's my, it's, that's my approach. The, the open book business model. Um, is that common with brands that are, are trying to follow a more sustainable model or is that something, where did you kind of get that from? No, it's not common, but it's supposed to be. So there's a big push um, after. So in 2013, we had a big tragic event, just like throughout business history, apparel, the fashion industry specifically, tragic events lead to big change. And so when Rana Plaza collapsed in Bangladesh in, in 2013, over 1,100 people died, tragic event. And you know NGOs and communities and, and everybody went in saying, wow, this is tragic. Whoa, as we undo the rubble, look at all the brands that are in here. And the brand said, woo, not us. We didn't know our goods were in there. We didn't tell our agent to put our goods in that factory, not our fault. And eventually the public pressure was like, no, no, no. That is no longer okay. You have to know. We, you can't operate in a black box where you just write a check to one agent over in India or Bangladesh and they handle everything else and then it's on them. So brands immediately came under a lot of pressure. And then this idea of transparency and traceability came about. Very few brands have traceability in their supply chain mm -hmm. all the way back to what we call tier four, raw materials. How are they grown? Where, how are they processed, manufactured, all the inputs that went along? So there's been this push for more traceability and Fashion Revolution is an organization. You might, every April, um, that's when the Rana Plaza collapsed, you'll see this campaign for who made my clothes and brands will hold up these signs with their factory workers saying, hey, I made your clothes. I made that hat, I made that shirt and my name is. And just to kind of you know, show that, hey, there are humans, right. Right. hands that make all of our goods. And so um, highlighting that. So it's this push to try to, so you're starting to see H&M again, for example, you go to their website shop online, they've got traceability. They'll tell you what factory made it. Nike does the same. Most companies who have a strong program, you should be able to download their factory list, see where they make their goods. Some of them like Patagonia will tell, tell you, what the mix is, like um, how many migrants are in there, what their migrant policy is, and you know, men versus women, age group, who's making what, because they're pushing that limit of like, hey, consumer, enough consumers wanna know, NGO pr is pressuring us. We think eventually some sort of regulation or legislation will come along on this as well. Yeah, yeah. And so we're gonna get out ahead of it. Right, right. So it's not, wild and it's not a wild and crazy idea but we're small and it's easy to do but more and more brands know they they have to do it yeah i bought a shirt off your website i know day. i saw it thank you we got to get it shipped out i want to get you a <laughs> I, pair of shorts too so you awesome. we got to work that out yeah i i was hoping i would i i should have thought this through sooner and i could have had my shirt for today but <laughs> you know i i didn't really to me it didn't i mean again i should I'm not a high fashion person, but I, I will pay money for things that I appreciate, you know, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'll spend some, buy some mountain bike part that people are like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is crazy. You know, whereas I won't spend money on other things, but I didn't, it didn't seem overly expensive at all to me. I actually thought the shirt was kind of cheap. Well, we were not very, look, not cheap looking or anything like that, but I, yeah. I, Reasonable. As I was reading through the su supply chain and the expenses of that open book business model, which, you know, just to 
make it super crystal clear for somebody. When you go to the website and I'm looking at this shirt that I really want, it literally shows you here's where it's made. How much did it cost? The materials, shipping, where was the label made and sewn? Oh, it was made right here in Los Angeles. Cool. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, there's an element to that, that from a marketing standpoint is really cool. You know, like I liked right. seeing, oh, there's stuff being made right here in LA. That's, you know, I'm, I'm a big, I try to support California business. Mm -hmm. I'm on this big, huge pro California <laughs> thing because I'm sick of everybody like, you bashing know, us. bashing us. And then I'm like, it, that's not even remotely true what you're saying. You yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, how are you going to have electric cars? You can't keep the power on. I'm like, I've lived here forever and I've never had a rolling blackout. I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> you know? And it's like, let's be forward thinking a little bit. You know, why do you think we're shutting down the power grid in the 130 degree temperature that's happening in the summers right now? Let's get, you know, at some point you got to address issues and take hard decisions and make hard decisions and make, you know, to, to get to a better place. And we, we just seem so incapable of that lately, but you nailed it. Not, I said, I'm not, I don't get political on the show. This one, it's a little hard <laughs> to not, you know, when we talk about minimum wage and things like that, but you know, I, I that open business model I, is really interesting, but when it kind of came down to it, I was like, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem expensive for, you know, you're a premium, obviously the yoga world and what you're doing, it's, a, you know, you're not selling a, a band t-shirt, <laughs> you know, right, right. It has a purpose. It's, um, you know, tech wear, performance tech wear. It's like buying a bike jersey or, or something like that. But I thought price-wise it was totally affordable and in line with anything else I would look at. Well, and that's good to know. We really consciously, I really con wanted to make sure that the brand kind of maxed out at that, that realm of like, yes, it's premium goods for sure, but it's no, it's not any different than outer known Patagonia or Prana, something like that. It's like, we're in line with them. Um, and, and we can do okay. And we really wanted to have a focus too on like our short, it's a yoga short, it's a performance short, but it's natural fiber based. So my push is to have more of a natural fiber approach. So our yoga short is made with hemp, organic cotton and a small little amount of um, spandex or elastane, which you need to have your stretch. Mm -hmm. But it's got this different and more rugged look, but the environmental footprint of that is, is just totally different than a nylon or polyester short, right? One relies on finite resources tied still to the you know fossil fuel industry, et cetera. So for us, if we're trying to tell the story of like moving away from that, then I, I've got to have solutions that are in line with that. And so this short works awesome, looks great, comfortable. And that's kind of our marquee product and it's 84 bucks. So to your point, definitely not cheap. You can get a, you can get another elastic waist short made from conventional cotton and maybe, you know, Vietnam, Sri Lanka, Myanmar somewhere. And who knows, it might cost you 19 bucks, Yeah, you know, but, but ours has the story and it goes back to, well, how do we convince customers and tell them? So we've got to tell you the, tell you the story of the fabric of the materials of how we dyed it, of who cut and sewed it. What about Lefty, the woman-owned factory in, you know, up in Los Angeles, what makes them so, you know, unique mm -hmm. and exciting and worth, you know, us paying more so that we have to charge you more. So it's a great opportunity because then otherwise we would just be fighting with other commodity brands or we would be competing against a Uniqlo or somebody else who has that very similar profile of short or a surf, you know, one of the surf brands, for example. So we have to set our side, ourselves apart and tell, constantly tell a different story and let people know what we're doing, 
how we're doing it and why we think it's better and why they should, why they should care and why they should choose Cosm. Yeah. I mean, at some point you'll have to probably take on a whole different marketing approach once this becomes what everybody does. And that, and I love that you say that because that was always my pitch too. Even as a consultant, it's like, let's just get, and, and we call it in, in the sustainability sustainability world, we call it um, co-opetition or there's a lot of um, pre-collaborative, um, you know, pre-competitive collaborative work that needs to be done because the biggest impacts are back in the supply chain. So how can we buy better cotton that's not associated with slave labor, you know, or human trafficking? How can we eliminate these hazardous chemicals deep in the supply chain way back in India, China, wherever it is? That's not something that one brand can fix. All brands have to, all, and a whole industry has to go and fix that. So brands are learning to work together. And eventually it's like, let's just make this a common business, the common practice and get our pricing in line. If we're all doing this together, we'll get this kind of steady you know, bar that we've set. And then we can go back to competing on with athletes and events right. and stories and influencers <laughs> and stuff. But the right. back end will be handled and done. Yeah, so. there's a point where it just becomes like, you know, well, yeah, all shirts are made this way or, you know, It'll it's be- not like, hey, look at this shirt. It's made from this. And, you know, this is old coffee grounds or whatever. Yeah. It's just we're like- still in the convincing part. Right. We're still <laughs> trying to convince it's the EV. It's the EV story where it's like, you know, look at Honda way back. And you're trying to explain what this car is and what it does yeah. and why the Prius was so good. And eventually GM and Ford are going to be going back and, you know, back to just talking about trucks and capacity and weight. And they'll both be electric and it'll be fine. And yeah, you know. it, there, there, that shift, if you're, that shift is already like the, the look, Ford bought Rivian, I think, right? Those Rivian trucks that oh, came yeah. out of Ohio that are on, I mean, now it's not like, oh, I want to get one of these vehicles because they're electric. Now you're looking at vehicles going, holy crap, that thing is amazingly cool. I want yeah. that. And you're not exactly. even thinking like environment. or No, anything. and that's and I, the way it should be. You should, right, that, we right. shouldn't have to be burdened with that responsibility of trying to decide, yes. well, what's, where's my lowest footprint? And this is like, just buy the stuff that, that I want yeah. and know that, the, know that the maker did it right. I always felt that Tesla did the right thing in the way that they launched electric vehicles in the United States, which was, now we're going to make a sports car that is so awesome. And yeah, only a few people can buy it because it's a couple hundred thousand dollars. But, you know, when you saw it, you didn't go, that's a look at that electric car. It looks terrible. I would never drive that. Some hippies got that car. You just looked at that and we're like, oh, what celebrity is that in that sports car? Mm. So they started with ultra cool. And then, yes. went, hey, you know us, we have this amazing $300,000 sports car. Guess what we're coming out with? Here you go. Boom. And it just went nuts it still exactly. looked cool the performance is off the chart all those things and you know i you know some of the big car brands i think you know they started the other way <laughs> you know mm-hmm, but now it's mm-hmm. now it's catching up where you know these other companies and the motorcycle thing is is a little behind but it's you can say that now we can go well the electric motorcycle thing the battery capacities it's just like listen in two two years it'll be different you know it's yeah. these things are all happening and, you know, to some extent, like when I look at even my business model at the music school, you know, an online lesson right now, it's not perfect due to technological limitations, but the difference technologically six months ago to where it's at right now, it's a huge change. So I always look at it and go, well, a year from now, this is going to be like, we'll be playing in time with each other with no delay a year from now, for sure. 
5G, all these things happen. Yeah. So it's that whole idea of just getting out in front of it from a business standpoint and, and looking down the road a little bit to what can be, you know, kind of the norm uh, in the real near future. I, I have a friend, I always give him a little, a lot of shit about, about this. He's, you know, in the past, he would always be kind of, uh, you know, he'd always make fun of the hippies. <laughs> You know, he's not like super politically conservative, but you know, I was like, oh, that's a hippie thing or whatever. And I remember a day where he was like, yeah, you know, in the backyard, we have this composting thing. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, what kind of hippie are you? You know, and we always get a laugh out of that. And then, uh, yeah, I saw him the other day and he was like, oh, dude, I've been vegan for two months. <laughs> you know, hmm, raised it's eyebrow. It's so funny huh? how these things start one way and then all of a sudden it kind of becomes mainstream you know, it's, it's so true, but I think that's what, you know, again, it's that arc and that's what we as humans do. We progress. And so I think when you're in the camp of sort of being on this progressive side, like I've been in sustainability now for, I don't know, 14 some years. And I've watched it just do this like up and down, but I've, but it continuously chipping away, chipping away, do making, moving forward, moving forward. So in my head, I'm like, I know this thing there, this is not going backwards. There is no way there is no way because it's just, it's smarter. It's more res, re, reliant. It's more resilient in, in the future. Like, right. When we, when we project out there, it's like, it will be better and cleaner and it'll be, it will help us. It's just like, we will gravitate to that because yeah. it's just, it's the right thing. And to your point, even with like wages and this idea of paying people a living wage, as opposed to a minimum wage, a minimum wage may or may not be a, li- a living wage, right? It's right. sure st- set in stone, but what do people need for their basic needs to get by, to have decent clothing, food, shelter, electricity, utilities, Wi-Fi, phones. It's like, that's a, that's a living wage. We need to get people to that. And that's all throughout the world, right? Not just California, the U S like everywhere. So maybe we've got a problem if we are continuously chasing prices down to the bottom, that race to the bottom doesn't allow for sustainability, doesn't allow for living wages, but it's this business fix. Like we can't have it all. So yeah. maybe this race to the bottom isn't, it's not sustainable. It's just not, it's not, and we'll take yeah, that even out of the, you know, in the true sense of like, can't do it forever. It'll yeah, it's crash. Unsustainable. Yeah. That's, that's unsust- a, a great way of looking at it. We could talk about this stuff all day. It's I know. so interesting. I, I do wanted to touch base a little bit on your courses that you're doing with the underswell. I wanted to ask, um, you know, are you seeing, are there people taking some of these courses that are just interested in it or, you know, like just the average Joe that kind of wants to know about these things or is it more students and corporations and, and. Yeah, it's fun because um, to me, this is a really exciting space as well, because um, it is a really neat mix and sort of, um, so I'm getting just like I do for businesses. I have individuals coming who have had this moment where they're just like, and they come from all they're all age groups, right? People who are in retail in brands and different places, just going sales, just going, Hey man, I, I see the writing on the wall. I know what the future of this industry looks like and I'm not trained for it. Mm. And you are, and I'm a, I'm in a very, there are only a few of us that have just like had the, um, the benefit or the opportunity to be dedicated to this full time. So people now are just like, how do I, how do I do this? How do I do what you're doing? and still be a designer or a musician, right? At some point, everybody's just like, okay. So they're coming because they need to learn more and they want to learn more. So my whole pitch is like, hey, become an expert in sustainability. 
so that you can transform your role because you either want to get a new role, a new position. And I'm a, I let people know, Hey, you don't need to stop doing what you're doing. Just be more educated and have this, all this stuff that we're talking about in line with what you already do, but they can transform their role. They can transform their brand, their company, their industry. And if we're transforming all of those sequentially, then eventually we have a real impact on the world. So it is industry professionals, all different ages, college students, people who are looking to pivot and all of them have the same story of just like, man, I've been, you know, I knew I've been following this for so long. It's just so exciting. I'm just done with this old way. I want to be a part of this new movement. Teach me like, where do I start? And I'm like, and that's what I built it for. It's like, perfect. We are going to start at ground zero in music terms. It would be just like, Hey, we're going to start with music philosophy. And we're going to start with the history of rock and roll history of blues so that you can have a good understanding that by the time you start tweaking on your guitar, right. you're like, I know where this came from and I know everybody and I know where it's going. So that's my whole point too. I just felt like there was this gap in the market because you can read articles on climate change and one and a half degree pathways and all this biodiversity, this and that people are just like, I don't even know what that means. I'm not even sure I can talk about climate change. Truly. If somebody asked me like, explain it, I know it's important, but I don't know how to talk about it. To me, that was a huge issue. So I'm going to go back to the, to the science. We're going to talk about natural capital and ecosystems and ecosystem services and why biodiversity is important and the history of the modern environmental movement, which is fascinating. You know, we've been doing this since the the sixties. I mean, back in the 1800s, Benjamin Franklin was pointing out going, looking at the tanning industry and leather going, Hey, we got a problem here. This smells terrible. There is something toxic about Mm. this. We can't keep doing this climate change. We knew these were heat trapping gases back in the late 1800s as well. So it just, it was like this arc that you've been talking about, right? It's coming, it's coming, it's slow, there's pushback and eventually it just keeps marching forward. So that was a long way to answer that. It's like, it's all sorts of students. (laughs) That's great. That's really cool. Um, All right, last little subject here. um, Because like I said, we could talk all day, but, uh, and and non-hippie related. Um, uh, Well, it is, it's yoga. So I guess it is (laughs) related still. Although, you know, it's becoming, listen, my mom, 82 years old. She lives in a farm community in Southwest Wisconsin. Well, you, you, you had dinner with my mom. Yeah. She's awesome. Joyce, <laughs> there's 2,500 people in her town. Right. And it's pretty like, you know, when I go to visit, I am just prepared for like the hippie California bash that I'll get <laughs> from all my cousins and like anybody I meet. I call her the other day. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I just got home from yoga. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I'm like, how, how far did you have to drive to go to yoga? Like, was that a three hour drive to the city somewhere? Should you do it online? No, no. There is a yoga class in her little town. Awesome. So, you know, it's just interesting how those things eventually they start to penetrate, you know, mm-hmm. um, in that world, do you think, uh, is the movement going to be online and is it going to is there going to be this big shift or is everybody going to go back or what do you, what do you think the future of that is? Yeah, good. I don't know. I don't know, Danny. I think we even just in general, I mean, it's been amazing to watch, you know, I've, uh, for me, I've been practicing yoga now for uh, seven years, I guess. So it's been a big part of my life for, for a while, but it has been, it's, you know, you're going back and you're talking about going back into a small room. Some people are still doing it, you know, sure. small room. The whole focus is ba- yoga is basically just stretching while breathing. 
you know? So you're breathing, sure it's nostril breathing, but in and out and exhale and deep exhales. And so to be, you know, next, I mean, rooms get crowded, they get hot, you're sweating. And I don't know how soon people are all going to go back. And I've watched a lot of teachers pivot to online for sure. And now with like the Peloton, the mirror, like all these mm -hmm. tools, like there is just more and yoga. Sure. You get, there's a community aspect to it. And there's right. just like riding, right? If you go mountain bike riding with a group, it's a different feeling, but you can also get that on your own, just you, so at least something similar. And for me now, you know, I, I just practice my yoga and my breathing. I do a deep breathing meditation every morning, um, stretching as well, but I just do it on my own. And I haven't got to this point. I didn't abandon it because I couldn't go into a studio. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, I'm kind of self-sufficient in it, but luckily I had my former training, Sure. but I do miss working with a coach. So I don't, I think outdoor where it can yoga, bigger rooms, more open, but that idea of these small rooms, packing 40 people in there really close where you can't even spread your arms on your next to you on the mat. I think it could be a while before we get back to that, but yeah, I, I mean, eventually though, once I, I got, I guess I should have phrased my question a little bit differently because you know, there's a, eventually when, whenever that is, when we are medically capable, there's no restrictions, okay. you know, to those things. And we know there's a lot of things people are going to go bonkers. They want to get out there and do, but the other side of it is not only our businesses seeing, well, wow, you know, this, this actually works better in some ways from a business yeah. model, from what they can do and what they can offer people that they couldn't really offer before. And there's a consumer that I, I think looks at those things and goes, man, I, why do I need to go drive you know, over and try to find a parking place over at the camp, you know, <laughs> like to go to yoga when I got to take 20 minutes to park and, you know, whatever minutes, yeah. all the issues are that go along with those kind of things. You know, it's like this, this give and take of, you know, some businesses telehealth was already happening. It's going to be, you know, some people that weren't doing telehealth that made that shift, you know, I listen to them. They're all just like, we're never going back. You know, we're only seeing patients if you absolutely, you know, if it's really something you need mm -hmm. to physically be there with them. And uh, just kind of an interest because to me, the yoga world seems like one that would really be ripe to make more of that pivot and really offer that to households all over the world. I mean, obviously people were already doing it, you know, yeah. all these, all these things that we've shifted everybody to, during the pandemic, there was already businesses that that's all they did. You know, True. the early adopters were way ahead of us, you know, when these things came up. I think there's something though, for sure, when you can just about that human connection, being in that room with other people breathing in unison yep. with each movement, there is something really special and really pretty powerful about it. And also hugging community, you know, it's a touchy feely mm -hmm. kind of community. <laughs> right. So it's, it is fun. And I do miss that. But to your point, man, I started chalking up all the things that I was driving around to running here, packing the car, going off, going to yoga, coming back, you know, boom, shower, fix, then go do this driving all that time. Like all of a sudden I have it back because mm -hmm. now I just step outside, do my yeah. thing, go right to the next thing. It's like, we're cramming, we're able to cram in a lot more. So I don't know. I think it'll be some sort of mix of yeah. for sure. People pivoted and made a bigger impact with their practice. Cause now instead of 40 people, you know, 10, 10 to 40 people a class. Now they might be reaching hundreds of people, uh, a, a session on zoom or wherever it is. So. Yeah. Interesting, Interesting stuff. Times. Derek, thank you so much for, I know we went a little longer and I, I appreciate your time. You're, I know 
you've got your hands in like a hundred different things and are super busy. <laughs> it's all right, man. I loved it. That's great to chat with you, Danny. Thank you. Thanks for letting me tell some of my story. Appreciate no, it, man. It's really interesting stuff. Um, let us know where to let people know where to find you. Yeah, find me. So one Cosm is the Cosm. So at the Cosm, um, the Cosm.com. And that's uh, yoga goods, sustainable fashion, yoga goods made for yoga, good for everything else. And then my consulting, if you're interested in, um, you're an individual, you've got a brand that wants to focus on sustainability, learn more. My teaching courses and my consulting is at the underswell and the underswell.com. And then I'm just at Derek A. Sabori on uh, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. So <laughs> that's me, man. Right on. Thank you so much, Derek. Really appreciate your time. Danny, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you later.